Abortion in the Church, a Document of Evangel Presbytery. Chapter 2, Abortion's Assault Upon God's Character and Law. Section 6b, Dealing with Common Justifications for Abortion. Health of the Mother. After all the other arguments above, The final accusation abortionists throw at pro-lifers often sounds something like this. You men are so fixated on women giving you as many babies as possible that you couldn't care less about their difficulties in pregnancy and childbirth. All you care about is babies and more babies. Even if her baby is killing her, you tell the mother she has to stay pregnant. She can't have an abortion even if it saves her life. She has to die so the baby can live. That's how insane you are. Now, maybe the many decades of our combined years in the anti-abortion movement aren't typical, but through those years, we do not remember hearing any pro-lifer saying or writing that a mother must be told to die herself if a doctor tells her it's between her and her baby. Pro-lifers are quite reasonable and loving, and their love for babies is not greater than their love for mothers. Anyhow, it's never going to be constructive during polemics with abortionists, speaking from the malice of their blood guilt. For the Christian to try to have a rational discussion of various threats to a pregnant woman's health and the connection those threats may or may not have to the continuation of her pregnancy. For abortionists, this accusation is only a ploy. It's never a real argument. Another thing to keep in mind is the tendency of abortionists to blur any distinction between mental and physical health and life. When they speak of, quote, health of the mother, unquote, abortionists usually are referring to both the physical and emotional health of the mother. To them, both physical health concerns and mental health concerns are sufficient justification for killing the little ones. Recall that this was the state of affairs prior to Roe v. Wade. At the time, abortion was largely legal for the purpose of protecting the emotional health of the mother, not just her physical health. One year prior to Roe v. Wade, back in 1972, abortion's death toll was already 586,760. What this shows is the limited protection our little neighbors have from death if the mother declares her emotional well-being is at stake. If abortion were outlawed for reasons other than protection of the life of the mother, it's likely, quote, life of the mother, unquote, would in practice be viewed expansively. In its application, in order to include threats to the mother's life due to mental health vulnerabilities, and many abortions would then be performed under these rubrics. This is particularly so given the fact long known among medical professionals that no preborn child's death is necessary to save the life of his mother. Physicians, both pro-life and pro-abortion, have testified to this simple truth for decades now. 
and it has only become more true as those decades passed. Here, for instance, is C. Everett Koop, quote, Protection of the life of the mother as an excuse for abortion is a smokescreen. In my 36 years in pediatric surgery, I've never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life. When a woman is pregnant, her obstetrician takes on the care of two patients, the mother-to-be and the unborn baby. If, toward the end of the pregnancy, complications arise that threaten the mother's health, he will take the child by inducing labor or performing a cesarean section. His intention is still to save the life of both the mother and the baby. Because the baby has suddenly been taken out of the protective womb, it may encounter threats to its survival. The baby is never willfully destroyed because the mother's life is in danger. On the pro abortion side, father of Planned Parenthood, Alan F. Guttmacher, corroborates this understanding. Quote, Today, it is possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she suffers from a fatal illness such as cancer or leukemia. And if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save, life. Unquote. Decades ago, the evidence and testimony of both pro-life and pro-abortion physicians made it clear that mothers carrying their babies to term would not jeopardize the lives of their mothers regardless of the sickness or disease any mother contracted or was living with during her pregnancy. So the accusations of abortion promoters and supporters that pro-life men and women say such mothers have a duty to die to save the life of those children is a bald-faced lie. There are no such mothers. There are no such children. Yet there are mothers who face decisions involving certain risk factors connected with their lives and the lives of their babies. And we have read testimonies of such mothers choosing to put off certain medical treatments needed for their terminal illnesses because those treatments posed a threat to their baby. These mothers have cried out to God for healing of their sickness so they can carry their little one to childbirth and life. Their doctor has explained that putting off treatment of their cancer, for instance, might hasten their death, but the mother refuses radiation, instead pleading with God for her own life and the life of her child. She has declined treatment rather than to risk harm to her child. She will speak of her love for her baby. She will remind those reading or listening how Jesus said no man has greater love than to lay down his life for a friend. She may recount how this statement of Jesus made the decision clearer to her and her husband. We ask ourselves if this is good or bad. Many things would have to be considered if one of us were to be faced with the same decision. The relative risk. The desire of one's husband. The number and ages of any children who would be left motherless. The counsel of the older women of the church the pastor, and the elders, whether the doctor was a Christian, whether the baby was close enough to viability that holding out a couple weeks and taking her by cesarean section would be an option, allowing radiation to start earlier. The list could go on. 
Not one of us, though, would have the desire or claim the authority to take this life-and-death decision out of the mother and father's hands. Christians repeat our Lord's command to take up our cross and follow him. But this is a far cry from one believer declaring to the pregnant Christian mother the specific cross she must take up is foregoing cancer treatment so that her unborn child will not be endangered by the radiation. None of us can imagine saying to such a Christian mother that her baby takes precedence over her, nor that foregoing radiation, for instance, is what Jesus means when he commands us to take up our cross for his sake. Rather, we would understand and agree with this mother if her treatment posed some level of risk to her baby, but she chose to proceed with that treatment. The mother's and baby's lives are inextricably intertwined, and there are times when to save the mother's health and life is to save the baby's health and life. There are also times when treatments to save the mother's health and life pose an equal risk to herself and her baby. Yet the decision will be made to proceed with that treatment, recognizing that if the treatment ends up killing the child, this was in no way the intent of the physician or of his patient capable of full consent, the mother. They both knew he had two patients, and everything was considered and done to protect the well-being of both patients. But in the end, the second patient, despite their best efforts to keep it from happening, died. In this case, the physician, father, and mother can all take comfort from their vigilance to protect both the mother and her child, knowing the succeeding death of the child was neither their intent nor their fault. They acted wisely and by faith in God's care for both mother and child, and God's decree was that the mother would live and the child would die. The Lord giveth the Lord taketh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1, verse 21. This discussion emphasizes the necessity of reminding physicians and one another that when we treat a pregnant mother, our treatment inevitably treats her child also. Pharmaceutical corporations know this very well and are vigilant to warn physicians, pharmacists, and customers of the danger their products pose to babies in the womb of the mother ingesting those products. Everyone knows pregnant mothers should not smoke or drink if they desire to protect the little child in their womb. When a child is listening to her mother's songs, feeling her mother's movements, sensing her mother's joy and pain, eating her mother's food, sharing her mother's oxygen, and swimming in her mother's amniotic fluid, Her health is inseparable from her mother's health. The doctor who prescribes medicine or treatment for the mother knows this very well, being motivated to know it by the potential of a malpractice suit if she or he prescribes a drug or treatment which produces fetal anomalies in that child, leaving the child disabled when she enters this world. Physicians also know it, because over the course of the 1970s, amniocentesis became the standard of care for pregnant mothers older than 35 years of age. This was due to their considerably higher risk of giving birth to children with Down syndrome, or aneuploidy. Today, the physician must provide their patient with the options of amniocentesis, chorionic villus sampling, 
or more often cell-free fetal DNA screening, along with other fetal diagnostic procedures that protect the right of the parent, and yes, also the child, to exercise the option of termination of pregnancy in order to prevent what is legally referred to as, quote, wrongful birth, unquote, and, quote, wrongful life, unquote. Malpractice suits are filed by both parents and children, accusing physicians of neglecting to follow standards of care which would have made a diagnosis and termination of pregnancy possible, thus preventing the birth of a child of low quality of life because of a defect which might otherwise have been diagnosed in the womb. In 1990, over 30 years ago, fetal testing was so common that 200,000 pregnant women were subjected to amniocentesis procedures. Let us confess our faith by stating that we who belong to Jesus Christ abominate this practice which now results in the aborting of over 90% of children with Down syndrome today in North America. Let us confess our faith by declaring that we Christians don't kill babies to protect ourselves from giving birth to a handicapped child. Christian physicians don't talk mothers into killing their baby in order to protect themselves from malpractice suits. In fact, no civilized person kills babies. What is the meaning of, quote, civilization, unquote, and, quote, the rule of law, unquote, when citizens protect their time and money by shedding the blood of their babies. Abortionists see only one person, the mother, and so they kill her baby. They say it forthrightly and often. Some of them deny the babies are persons. Some deny babies are alive. Sometimes they are brutally honest, saying the mother's right to abortion is absolute, and this is, quote, whether or not it's a life, unquote. There will, as was pointed out above, be mothers who choose to reject treatment of their disease because the treatment poses a very serious danger to her preborn child. In such extraordinary cases, we acknowledge our Lord's declaration, quote, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Unquote. John 15, verse 13. Now do I sleep the sleep of death Have my day